Hey everyone, welcome to the Rumination on Link's Awakening. Uh, first of all, I hope you enjoy. This is actually going to be our first Rumination of the uh, Zelda series since everything prior to now has been the then and now format, so I hope you like this. Um, th thank you to everyone who joined me for the behind-the-scenes live take on this. Uh, for those of you not aware, I went ahead and decided to stream me playing through the game while I was taking notes and, and jotting down things and whatnot. And it was a lot of fun, and we got to talk about this and a few other topics, of course, as my stream always tends to stray topic-wise. And I had a really cool stream runner uh, named Muffin, believe it or not, who joined me and, and gave me some tips, and we talked about how awesome Link's Awakening is. This is a great game, by the way. I it was a really a treat to replay this game for the Rumination. I just want to say that right off the bat. So why don't we dive right into this. Um, this is going to be slightly more disorganized than usual, believe it or not, because... I had my thoughts all over the place with this game. It's it's a weird game to actually discuss. Initially, I was debating whether or not I was even going to do a rumination on this game and several other games. We'll see when we get there. But uh, after having played through it, I definitely have enough worth... Uh, I feel like it's enough worth talking about, so I hope you'll, you'll forgive my indulgence in actually talking about this game. This is probably going to be a pretty short video, though, just so you guys know. So this is the first Zelda Gaiden game, the very first one. Um, this is also the very first Zelda game that did not involve Ganondorf basically at all. The timeline placement is really simple. We've got uh, Link to the Past. This is all the same Link, by the way. The Link from Link to the Past you know, saved everyone forever in Link to the Past and then was called away to deal with the, the, uh, the difficulties in another land in the Oracles games, Oracle of Ages, Oracle of Seasons. And then literally, like, within days of completing Oracle of Ages, Oracle of Seasons, Link was like, aha, I will now sail to other lands to see if they need help. Got in his ship, took off, ship crashed, and that's the beginning of Link's Awakening. Excuse me. I keep starting these ruminations with sneezing lately. That's the thing that... Okay. Ah. Now, in terms of production order, uh, this one is the fourth Zelda game. Uh, Zelda 1, Zelda 2, Link to the Past, and then this one. You can tell that they learned a lot of lessons in Link to the Past. A lot of the way the game plays and functions is clearly modeled after, after Link to the Past. And in many ways, it actually plays better than Link to the Past in, in terms of its raw gameplay. And a few other ways, it is much, much worse. <laughs> I'll be talking about that as we go through here. But, for example, the, the movement uh, on, on the pixel level, rather than on the, uh, the tile-based system, and the, the, the usage of the, the sword, and the it just, it's just a lot of things. A lot of little things were all clearly based off the LTT model. Not that I'm saying it's a bad thing. Uh, as I talked about, LTTP basically codified what a Zelda game is, whereas Zelda 1 and Zelda 2 were still kind of trying to figure it out. But Link's Awakening also is a first for in many ways for the Zelda series, believe it or not. This is the first time that fishing was a part of this game. Now, I know that sounds like a weird thing, but some people tend to forget that fishing has always been a big deal in, in the Zelda series, and they've, there's almost always been some kind of fishing mechanic, and, you know, it's in Ocarina, it's in Twilight, you know, blah, blah, blah. This is where it actually started. Completely optional, too. I, I don't even remember what you get for it other than some seashells. Um, this is also the beginning of the trading game, the trading minigame, which... Uh, I don't even remember what you get as a result of that. I, I mean, I just played this game last night, and I still can't remember. But, you know, you, you go there, and it's like, oh, I get this item, and you can trade it for this item, and you trade it for this item. Usually the trading game the trading game is very common nowadays. 
Um, but it's it's the kind of thing where it's almost always worth doing, and it's usually fun to do. So I usually do the trading game, whether it's required or not. This is also the first time we had the collectible secrets concept. This is most well known as the gold Skulltulas, and the sun just came out, which means my lighting balance may have just screwed up. Hang on, let me check really quick. Recording during the day is going to be interesting in the future, methinks. I may just leave the monitor on. I know that gives me a glare to my glasses, but this way I can double check on things. Yeah, okay, so we're good, we're good. I'm just going to leave the monitor on just to test this, just to make sure everything's good. All right, back to the recording. So, uh, collectible secrets. Gold Skulltulas is the most commonly thought of thing when it comes to the collectible things. Uh, there's also a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, like the um, like the little uh, the golden bugs in Twilight Princess, all that sort of thing. That all started here with the seashells, which gets you the upgraded sword. And what else do we have? The uh, oh, this is actually a really fun one. This is one that I find fascinating because this became commonplace in Zelda for every game after this one. Each dungeon and sub dungeon has their own song. And it's a weird thing to think about, but if you look back, Zelda 1, 2, and Link to the Past all had, like, basically two or three songs for all the dungeons. And so, you know, some would have, like, the Light World Dungeon theme, and some would have the Dark World Dungeon theme. Some would just have the Dungeon theme, and then there's the Final Boss theme, you know, that kind of thing. So this is the first one where each dungeon has its own theme. And again, that, that will be the standard from now on. And I find that funny. When I mentioned that on the stream, people were like, wait, really? I thought, yeah, you know, but it's true. This is where that started. There's a lot of really good music in this game. Uh, Tall Tall Heights being my favorite by far, of course. But it's funny to mention this because I looked up the composers, yes, plural, by the way, who, who did the music for this game. And they include uh, several big names, which I will not try to butcher by pronouncing. I'll simply tell you what they've worked on. A little game called Metroid, Super Mario Land. Um, uh, there's this little little known game called Earthbound. You know, a few random games you've probably heard of, but but some relatively big names as far as music design. This game also is weird because it's probably one of the most lighthearted Zelda games that I've played, and this is actually common in the handheld games in general. The Oracle's games tend to be fairly lighthearted too, um, and it's weird because you know it, you might be like, well, Zelda, the Zelda series is is is, is very lighthearted. No, no, it isn't. The Zelda series tend to be very dark. And have some very serious themes and, and elements to it. Uh, as I as I famously talk about, even Wind Waker, a game which looks like car it's super cartoony, is incredibly dark and very much not lighthearted at all. So uh, you know that's another example of that we're starting to lose some of the green screen here. Anyways, um, so the lighthearted tone though is one of the things I do enjoy about this game because Link's Awakening feels fun, even in the story concept, even everything. It, it just feels fun. Like, there's just kind of, ah, kind of a thing going on. It's like, woo, and we'll go do this, and da-da. It feels like an adventure in the the youthful sense of the word. You know, ah, let's go and explore and do all this thing, which is, in many ways, the same feeling that Zelda 1 had. By contrast, Zelda 2 and Link to the Past felt like this is a serious epic tale. You know, something that's, oh god, we have to go and, and, and defeat this thing, or it's going to be doom for all, and blah, 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 you know completely different feeling to it. I'm not saying it's good or bad, I'm just pointing out the difference. Now, the, uh, as I mentioned, this is a direct sequel to the Oracle's games, which is a direct sequel to Link to the Past, and all three, all three of these, or four of these if you want to count it that way, games are a single, uh, single link, same link throughout the course of them. One thing that I've always found funny is that this could be called Oracle of Dreams. 
because of the similarities between this and the Oracles games, and the fact that the Oracles games were supposed to have a third game. We'll talk about that when we get there. But let's talk about a few things here. Um, let's talk about a few gameplay points. I'm just going to kind of go down my list. Like I said, this is my list. My note isn't really in order. We're going to try and talk about these things. So, first of all, this is the first game to have Hepora Gebora, even though he's not called that. And in fact, uh, for the longest time, I actually had the theory when I was very first playing this that he, the, the owl was actually the windfish. I turned out to be wrong. Spoiler alert, by the way. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, this was the beginning of the owl. And the funny thing is, I find this owl much more tolerable and enjoyable than Hippora Gebora in Ocarina of Time. Why? Two reasons. Number one, this one knows how to talk quicker. Two, he doesn't have a, would you like to hear what I said again? Where the option is defaulted to yes every single time you talk to him. So you can mash through his dialogue if, you, if you've heard it before and then just move on with it, right? Key difference there. Um, he tends to give you some really useful info, too, but admittedly the same could be said of Hipporah over in Ocarina of Time. And I feel like I've said that name so much lately I've forgotten how to pronounce it, so I'm just going to move on before I screw up. Uh, one of the weird things that this game brings up topic-wise is existentialism. I know this is a weird direction to go into, but I want to mention this here before I go into more gameplay stuff, because I'm not sure that's actually true in retrospect. The idea of, I mean, it kind of is. It's, it's, it's the classic concept, you know, if I dream, uh, what's the quote? If I, if I, uh, how do I, how do I know I am, if I dream of being a butterfly, how do I know I am not a butterfly dreaming of being a man? I forget the exact quote, but it's that kind of a concept. The idea of how do we know what we are? How do we define what we are? The concept of perception and illusion and all that thing is something that is admittedly threaded throughout this, but I feel like it wasn't a deliberate theme of the work so much as it was an intent to examine the concept as, as a nutshell and to, and to use that as like a, a launch-off point for the other theme that we'll actually talk about. So I just want to talk about the right at the beginning because when I most often hear people discuss the theory crafting of Link's Awakening, that's inevitably what comes up, existentialism. You know, do we exist? How do we know we exist? How do we know what is real is real? How do we define real? You know, and all that fun stuff. So I, I don't really have anything else to add to that. Um, let's go back to the gameplay stuff. So the dungeons have a great thing. Warp points. If you defeat a mid-boss, you get a warp point that literally goes back to the beginning of the dungeon. So you have the ability to not only go back, but if you die and start over or get tossed back by one of the mini-bosses, you can warp back to the midpoint. So you don't lose too much progress with regards to going to a dungeon, which is a great idea. This is basically the first Zelda to do this. Later Zeldas would replicate this idea with dungeon design. Ocarina of Time probably being one of the most infamous examples. You know, you go through a dungeon and you get item A, or you hit switch B, or you open door C, and now if you die, you can basically just go back to where you were because the design of the dungeon allows it. So there's not literally a warp point in later dungeons. But the same concept remains. You don't lose progress going through a dungeon. You don't have to backtrack to the whole thing. I feel like this was a deliberate reaction to Zelda 2 in specific, where if you died you had to go back through huge amounts of the dungeon, lots of backtracking, which basically just is padding and grind at that point, not really adding to the substance of the game. So I'm glad they got rid of that. Um, the stone beak thing, which is actually a, a similar idea to what happened in Link to the Past with Sassarala's, or how the hell you say his name, stones, uh, was a really good idea in my opinion. They're basically just hints. I like this because this is, an, again, in direct reaction, based on the developers, of Zelda 1 and Zelda 2. A lot of times, uh, players, especially in the day, you know, this is before GameFAQs, so I remind you, so we had Nintendo Power, uh, strategy guides, and sharing word between ourselves at, at the schoolyard or, or at work or whatever, right? 
So a lot of people in the day had this complaint that we're just getting lost. We're not exactly sure how to do things. And I mean, sometimes you can figure the puzzles out, but sometimes you just start running into a brick wall, metaphorically speaking. So they added this hint system in LTTP and and really expanded on it here in Link's Awakening with, with, the, with the owl's beak thing. So that if you're in a room and you can't really figure out what the heck's going on with this puzzle, you can go up to it and be like, eh, and it'll be like, oh, maybe you should shoot a bow. And it's usually, the hints aren't usually just telling you exactly what to do. They're just like, use the bow. And so you look around like, well, what can I hit with the bow? Oh, there's a thing over there. Kong, you know. Or there's one infamous uh, puzzle, and I actually showed it off on the stream when I was doing the behind-the-scenes live rumination, where you have to actually get the the switch blocks into a certain position, and then because the Z-axis actually exists in this game, I'll talk about that in a moment, you have to jump onto the block and then use that to progress, which is something that was completely alien and new to the Zelda series because the Z-axis was basically first introduced in this game. I know you could argue that because Zelda 2 is a side-scroller, but you know what I mean. Let's talk about that Z-axis thing. This game adds, in my opinion, one of the best power-ups across all of Zelda, the Feather. It, the feather just gives you the ability to jump, but you you have no idea how much flexibility and mobility that adds to the game and the gameplay in general. And it's a lot of fun to use. And they did some really great stuff with some of the puzzle design and some of the combat stuff you can do with the feather. You know, wow, they would expand upon this in the Oracles games, actually, uh, which I'll be talking about eventually. But the feather is awesome. I love the feather. And so the ability to actually jump up and, and, and get on top of things or, you know, literally have, like I said, a Z-axis existed for the first real time. Now, you might argue a Z-axis existed in Link to the Past or Zelda 1, and you would be wrong. I've, I've looked at the code of those games. There is no real concept of up or down. Like, if we're looking top down like this, so we've got these dimensions, but this dimension basically doesn't exist. Anytime you're going down a staircase, as far as the game's code is concerned, you're still on the same plane. But in this game, there actually is an additional plane here, which you can jump up and through like this. You can dodge enemies this way. You can, you know, all, all sorts of stuff. Great, great invention. Really added to the gameplay. I am a little bit amazed that future Zelda games would not use this other than the Oracles game, of course. Uh, I don't know if this is in Link, uh, Link Between Worlds because I haven't played that yet. We'll be playing it uh, for the first time ever for the Rumination, actually. So I'm looking forward to that. Anyways, the bow. This is a fun one. Um, this was done for three reasons, and this is great. For those of you not aware, you can steal the bow. You can actually steal any item from the shop, but really the bow is the only one we're stealing because it's a, a 900 and, and whatever rupee cost item, which is ridiculous. So, you know, you buy the shovel for 200, and then you steal the bow, and it's like, ha-ha! First of all, the fact that you can steal the bow at all is awesome. The fact that they added that mechanic to the game is a great thing. They gave you the option. Second of all, they punish you for it. If you steal it, they tell you, there's a message shows up, say, hey, you stole it. You must feel pretty good about yourself, huh? And your name is forever changed to thief for the rest of the game. And if you try to go back into the store, what will happen is the shopkeep will kill you. Now, you can, of course, you know, I mean, he'll just one-shot you. There's no battle. He literally just zaps you with lightning. And so this is the second thing it does. It shows that stealing is basically wrong. It, it, it gets across that idea to the kids. The other great thing that having the, the, this mechanic does is it actually is kind of a hint of, of storytelling thing. I mean, this is, I mean you, at first you think it's a joke, right? This random shopkeep kills you for stealing. <laughs> but think about that. This random shopkeep... Ah, damn it, and then a cloud shows up. This is why I'm watching the thing. A random shopkeep hits you with lightning that kills you instantly. 
Why is that? I'm going to talk more about this theory later, but just keep it in the back of your mind, okay? Just just keep that back there. And we're going to we got to do something really quick to readjust the fact that the uh, there we go. The other great thing that this uh, the other great thing that this thing that having the the shopkeep thing it does is it's it's a lore thing. It's a story thing. It's kind of a foreshadowing thing, believe it or not, at least in my opinion. Because you go in there and the shopkeep kills you with lightning and it kills you instantly. Why is that? This is Link we're talking about. He is destroyed instantly with lightning damage from a shopkeep. Now, I might be reading too much into this. And, and I mean, the general idea is obviously the joke, but I think there's a slightly deeper meaning behind this. And given how much the Zelda series in general goes with subtlety, with regards to its explorations and themes and, and, and whatnot. I don't think it's too out of bounds to say that this is probably done deliberately with, with uh, deliberation and purpose. Um, I'll, I'll get to that later. Just keep it in the back of your mind, would you? Now, uh, one thing I really like about this game is the dungeon design. LTTP was no slouch in the dungeon design. But this game is really when you could tell that dungeon design started becoming like rule one for the Zelda developers. They really just pushed themselves to have unique mechanics and differences between the dungeons that vary them one from another and enable you to really do all sorts of unique different kind of stuff and the the, the platforms that fills in stuff and, and the, the, the conveyor belts and the giant things and knocking down the pillars of the tower. I mean, just tons of really unique, innovative, fun gameplay mechanics that really help make these dungeons last out. If you have not played Link's Awakening, I encourage you to, if for no other reason than to enjoy the amazing dungeon mechanics and dungeon design of this game. It's, it's top-notch. This lighting situation, I swear. Recording during the day is just always going to be a bit of an issue right now uh, until curtains are done. Anyways, now uh, I do want to make one negative thing, and that's the item swapping. You have to basically item swap constantly in this game because you have two buttons, and you can assign whatever to them. Sword, feather, bow and arrow, and just whatever. It literally doesn't matter. You can assign whatever to either. You can walk around with, with the feather and the boots for all you wanted to. And by the way, they do have the dash boots from LTTP. Great idea. But you do basically have to swap between what's what you got equipped constantly, even if you know what you're doing. And on the one hand, that is irritating. But on the other hand, it's not really that bad, and here's why. It's quick. In LTTP, it was a little bit of a... In, in this one, it's like... It's only a couple seconds difference between the two, as I glow with power here. But... Um, that that the difference matters because again you'll be doing this thing constantly so the less often the less time it takes the better and I think that works really well now I do have to mention one thing I was playing the DX version and first of all the color dungeon was awesome and the fact that you get a permanent boost to either your defense or your offense is great with the blue and red tunics but I do have to mention uh, the power ups the one that makes your attack do more damage and your you take less damage it makes a song go dilly 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 and it loops and loops and loops and loops and loops and loops and loops. And on more than one occasion, I deliberately damaged myself specifically so I'd stop hearing that damn song loop. Because it was driving me crazy. Um, just thought I'd point that out. Uh, the way that the swimming works is uh, pretty good in this one. I like the fact that you can still use items underwater during the side-scroller sections. And I like the fact that 
there's plenty of sections where you have the side-scroller sections in general. In fact, that's the next thing I want to talk about. This game actually has quite a few side-scroller sections. Um, it's funny because people are like, oh, Zelda 2 is the only side-scroller. No, this one has it. The Oracles games have it. And the Four Swords has it as well. All these games have entire chunks of dungeon, which is in the side-scroll thing. And actual stuff, and of course, this is where the Nintendo references really comes into play. Because almost every one of these side sections has Nintendo enemies in it. Goombas, uh, Piranha Plants, uh, Bowser's Heads, uh, Thwomps, all sorts of stuff like that. I actually had a friend who once theorized, forgive me for straying into the story aspect of things, that the reason there was so much Nintendo stuff here in addition to you know the Link stuff was because the Windfish was dreaming the Nintendo stuff and Link was dreaming the Zelda stuff. But, yeah. <laughs> I just thought I'd mention that. Oh, gosh, that freaking glare. Um, there's no fixing that, is there? I may just have to stop recording during the day and do all my recording at night. There's, this, there's no solution to this sun problem unless I get up like a, a, a curtain or something right there. Whatever. Let's, let's push through this. I really want to get this done. So apologies for the weird green screen for the episode, but I'm, I've got kind of a deadline and I need to get going, so forgive me. Um... So let's just push through this. Um, the one of the things that they do really well with the, the the dungeon design is is memory layers is what I like to call it. In other words, as each dungeon goes, you basically have more memory layers. Let me explain what I mean by this. You go into a dungeon and it's like, well, I can go to these places, but I see these obstacles, and I have an idea of what I need to do to get through those obstacles, but I can't do it yet. So, like in the first dungeon, there's like three obstacles you can't bypass. In the second dungeon, there's like five. And then as you get further through the dungeons, each dungeon has more things you have to remember, and indeed different layers of things you have to. Well, I have to. Well, I might have to go with this, and I need to remember where this key door was, and I need to remember where this pit was, and, and you need to remember more and more and more to, in order to be able to progress through the dungeons properly without a walkthrough. And it gets to the end point where by the end you need to be remembering like 8 or 12 or 13 different things on several different layers simultaneously to be able to, be able to figure out where you're supposed to go and what you're supposed to do and all that fun sort of thing. It's a unique way of doing dungeon progression as far as difficulty, and one I actually enjoy immensely and I think is a really well done, uh, really well designed thing. Now... I think we're done with all the gameplay stuff, so why don't we go ahead and talk about the story? Now, I've heard the th I've heard a lot of theory crafting about this game, but this is a Zelda game, so yeah, I've heard a lot of theory crafting about every game in this entire franchise. And one of the biggest theories I keep hearing is who actually created the win the Kohalint, the Windfish, or Link, or both. Both is the one I feel is the most likely to actually be true, because. I have a, fan, uh, a pet theory, which I'm going to share with you now, and it explains just about everything about this game from a lore perspective. See, Link, there's only one question for me, really. How did Link get here? How did he phys physically get here? Because he has this wreck, and then he ends up here. And you could easily dismiss this as it's just a fever dream of Link until you see that the Windfish is out and about in the re pre present world. It is also worth noting that the Windfish has a huge similarity to the Ocean King in Phantom Hourglass, to the point where most people consider them the same being. Remember, those are two separate timelines. The Windfish is over here in the LTTP one, and the Ocean King is over in the Wind Waker one. So these two entities could literally be the same entity, just different representations of them, thanks to the timeline difference. So Link, um, you know, he... he uh, he ends up there, and how? Why? I mean, how does Link enter this dream world is probably the one question that I don't really have an answer for, and I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts on the matter. But regardless of how he got there, there's no denying Koholint is a thing, and the Windfish is a thing. It's not just a dream in Link's mind. My theory is that the Windfish 
just like the Phantom, or just like the uh, the Ocean King over in Phantom Hourglass, created this realm, his own little private pocket dimension, basically, of, of an oceanic thing, and dreamed this entire place into existence, and was probably content to move on. This was probably a long time ago, by the way, because the idea here is that he was content to go ahead and, and move on, get on with his life and continue existing, and then several of the creatures in this realm realized that the dream was going to end, realized the true nature of their reality, and said, no, no, we need to stop this. These creatures would uh, then do whatever they could in order to try and ensure that the windfish would not awaken with the whole thing with the, the instruments and taking them away, sealing them away, creating the dungeons, etc. These creatures would eventually be called the Nightmares. Fun anecdote here. Or not an anecdote, but food for thought. If the Nightmares were capable of understanding that they were in a dream, and they were, could everyone else, could every denizen of this place think, realize that they were in a dream? Another fun fact, based on the way they talk to Link, it's very clear they think Link is simply another dream, which means they might not have the ability to discern the difference between anything in the dream realm and everything in the real realm. I digress, though. Um, and again, that kind of goes into that existentialism thing. But a lot of things make more sense when you get considered not only that the, the nightmares have been basically ruling this realm for a very long time and keeping the windfish uh, asleep so that they could continue existing, but the idea that Link's mere presence has actually affected the, whole over, the, the, the world of Koholint fundamentally, because he and the Windfish are the only two real people involved, the only two who are from the, the, the non-dream realm, who are not dreams themselves. Ergo, both of them are affecting the realm equally. I feel this explains a lot of this game. Number one, it explains the overworld map, which is a maze. This overworld map is a full-on, full-tilt maze that you have to navigate in certain ways. Even when you get all sorts of abilities, simply getting from point A to point B is often a thing of, okay, well, how do I get there? As opposed to virtually every other Zelda game ever, especially LTTP, the one we just left, which was a very coherent and logical overworld. This one is not. It doesn't actually make sense when it comes down to it from a geographical, from a logistical perspective. And I think that was done on purpose to emphasize the difference between the two minds that are now interacting to help create this world. So I think the world is literally different thanks to Link's presence in it, basically. And the maze is indicative of the interactions between the two minds and, and how they don't gel, how they don't actually fit with each other. The, uh, the other thing, though, I mentioned earlier, do you think everyone is aware of the fact that they're in a dream? That's debatable. And yet... One of the quotes that sticks with me is uh, the woman, whose name I actually can't remember, the, the, Zel the woman who looks like Zelda, says, please don't forget my song and please don't forget me. That, to me, gives me at least the idea that these people are aware of the fact that they are dreams and might go away someday and have probably just gotten used to that. I mean, how do you live with the idea that you might simply wink out of existence one day, right? You don't. You just kind of accept it and move on and try to, to, try to deal with it. This, uh, well, this kind of leads to one of my overall th theories about the primary theme of this game. I've talked about the themes of basically every Zelda up to this point, uh, except for Zelda 1. Well, no, Zelda 1 had a theme, too. Um, I feel like the theme of this game is fear. I know this is a weird way to go, but bear with me, okay? In other words, fear of what might happen, fear of what could happen, fear of what should happen, and the differing ways we approach fear. 
Link goes into this place, a complete unknown, and yet braves it as he always does. Keep in mind, this is a Link who's effectively empowered by the entire Triforce, thanks to the events of the previous games. Um, but regardless of that, this is a Link who, you know, the way he deals with it, the way he pushes through this, it's clear that fear, he, he is hesitant in some ways about what he's doing, but at the same time, he always pushes forward. That is how he deals with fear, because that is how he has always dealt with fear. Then we have the denizens, who I already mentioned deal with their fear by just pushing it away, not thinking about it. Don't, don't, don't deal with it, don't, don't accept it, don't acknowledge it, just push it away. We see how the nightmares deal with fear. They react violently, horribly. No, no, I must exist. I must continue to exist. And they're willing to do whatever is necessary to ensure that they continue existing, to ensure that they go on, they survive, right? And then we have uh, the, uh, the idea of all the creatures on this island. Again, many of which are indicative of, of Link's own personality and mindset. What do we see as we go through all the places that Link is going through? What do we see in all the dungeons and mechanics? We see everything that Link has always been afraid of. Remember, this is a seasoned adventure, Link. Someone who's been through three games already at this point in time. This is a Link who's already braved all this stuff. And while he is courageous, courageous does not mean unafraid. I feel that every single enemy we encounter and every single one of the, uh, the, the major puzzles in the dungeons came into being when Link arrived on Koholint and were representative of the fears that have been present in him basically uh, every, every game prior to now. Again, Oracle of Seasons, Oracle of Ages, and Link to the Past. Because again, same Link, right? Same guy. So I've always felt that the, all that was, was the aspect that Link brought to the picture, so to speak. But that is, of course, just my take on it. And who knows? I could be completely wrong. <laughs> um, final, final thought here. I mentioned how this is kind of a lighthearted game, despite the fact that I just talked about existentialism and the idea of, of ceasing to exist forever and, and the fact that the main theme of the game is fear. But there is another theme of the game that I feel is worth noting in addition to the fear thing, and it is actually tied directly into the fear thing. And I already kind of gave it away. The theme is adventure. Here is a brand new island, the game says. No Ganondorf looming on the horizon. No end of the world if we fail. No dark world. No, you know, spilling your blood on the ashes. None of that. None of that horrible darkness of the past couple of games. Just here is a brand new place to explore and enjoy. And that is an aspect of fear, isn't it? Now, because here's the thing, some people forget that there's multiple types of fear. There's rational fear, there's irrational fear, there's reasonable fear, you know. If you see, bad example, but if you see a Tyrannosaurus Rex stumbling after you, you are afraid when that happens. But that is a good kind of fear. That is a fear that will in in encourage you to do something to, oh, I don't know, rectify the situation. And it is rational to be afraid of certain types of things. And then there are irrational fears. And, of course, the way you react to fear, which, as I mentioned earlier, is kind of the big theme there, uh, is, is, is a big aspect of that, too. But all of that is present in exploration. The unknown. What is over that next hill? What is in that next dungeon? I feel like this is so wonderfully expressed, and I don't even know if they did it on purpose in this case, by all that, new, all that I talked about with the new mechanics and the new design and the new layout of everything. That's all, and, and, and all these great new gameplay things that they came up with is the unknown to the player, too. This is brand new stuff for the Zelda series, and, it, and it, so it gets across that theme as well. Uh, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but given that this is the Zelda series, I honestly don't think so. If anything, I'm probably not reading into it enough. 
But I do want to talk about one last thing. I mentioned that shopkeep earlier. Remember that Link, in my theory, affects the island. There's really no denying that Link affects the, the island to some extent or another. There really is no denying that. But in my opinion, he affects the island a lot. Like like half the island in this weird jigsaw is Link's mind. Wouldn't it be funny if the reason you get punished, killed even, for stealing the bow, is because it's Link's mind. And this is the Link who's, you know, a great hero and, and whatnot. So Link would think stealing. And I know that sounds like a minor crime, but stealing is something a hero wouldn't do. Stealing isn't something he would do. So even if he brought himself to do it, he would then feel he needs to be punished for it. Hence his name being called Thief for the rest of the game. Hence him being killed by magic lightning out of nowhere when, uh, when, when, when he goes back into the shop. Just a nice little way to tie that in. A little meta, but the Zelda series love to do that. That's all I got. A very short video considering the 10 or so hours I spent streaming the game. I love the hell out of this game. I highly, highly recommend this game to anyone who has, who has never played it. And it's a great starting point for the series if you've never played Zelda, even though Link to the Past is also a great starting point. And, yeah, I guess that's it. See you next time, guys.